Hello and welcome to the Downtown Drash, a podcast exploring the weekly parasha. My name is Dr. Michal Biton and I am the Rosh Keila of the Downtown Minyan. I'm here with my podcast co-host and colleague, Rabbi Joe Wolfson, JLIC Rabbi at the Bronfman Center of NYU. Today, instead of recording our usual thoughts on the weekly parasha, the weekly Torah portion, we're actually going to focus on the upcoming holiday of Shavuot. So, Rabbi Joe, what should we talk about today? So, when it comes to Shavuot, which is just this gem and beauty of a festival which is given to us in well, now the beginning of the summer, it feels, when it comes to the texts, in my mind there are really two texts of Shavuot. On the one hand, there is that ultimate moment around which surely everything else revolves, which is the giving of the Torah, what is called in Hebrew Matan Torah at Mount Sinai, Har Sinai. It's an amazing text. It's from Shemot. And it's this text of sound and noise and passion and thunder and lightning and shofar. And the other text is about as different as possible. It is quiet, it is pastoral, it is domestic, it is peaceful, and it's the story of Rut or Ruth, Megillat Rut, the book of Ruth. So I thought, Michal, that perhaps what we could do today is each of us share an idea on both of these pieces. What is it that Megillat Rut says to you on the one hand, and another hand on the other, perhaps not about the giving of the Torah itself, but about what the study of Torah means to you. I thought let's let's do that. So how about we begin with 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 Ruth. Michal, what are your feelings on Ruth? Uh, well, I'm I'm pro. Uh no, but but really, uh, I think this uh, this year learning Megillat Ruth has actually taken on a whole new meaning. Um I started preparing for Shavuot uh, back in Pesach time uh, when quarantine started. And when I read Megillat Ruth, I discovered a new layer that I never realized before. Because usually Megillat Ruth, I associate with questions around conversion, with, uh, you know, with what does it mean to accept the Torah, with beautiful acts of chesed, of loving kindness. But I noticed something else about the narrative that makes it especially relevant and timely for us today. And that is the following. Megillat Ruth starts with a natural disaster. It starts with famine. Okay? There is something natural beyond human action that creates a crisis in the land of, of Israel. And that precipitates the entire story. So one doesn't have to think too thoroughly to wonder what the, the parallel is. I hear you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it ends with the birth of the Messianic dynasty. Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David, David Melech, who, who we believe, you know, the Mashiach, the Messiah, would, would come um, from, that, from that line. So, so the question that I have been asking myself, and I'll also give an answer, but I keep thinking Ruth is giving us a template of sort, a portrait what does it mean to journey from, from crisis, from natural disaster, from destabilized society into, you know, messianic redemption, or at least the, the, the birth, the beginning of it? Uh, and that, that's been the, the framework, the question that I've been having. And, and it's been an amazing way to approach the text and so many ideas uh, can come up for us. But um, I'll share one that has moved me very strongly. Uh, and that is the following. Um, when, when learning the Megillah, we actually see that there's two very different kinds of actions that are about uh, social solidarity and taking care of each other. The first, okay, so let me try to give the two of them. And, and disagree with me if you disagree. 
Um, one, I, I, I'm thinking of in terms of tzedakah. What does it mean to have a society that has more tzedek, more justice within it? So we have a lot of institutions in Megillat Root that are about taking care of other people, whether it's leaving parts of your field for the poor, whether it's obligating a, a family member to redeem your field if you were too bankrupt and had to sell it and off. these are all rules whether, from the Torah originally, right? Which have expression in Megillat Root. Is that right? They are rules, uh, they are rules and Megillat Root show, showcases them as social institutions that a society basically takes on and says, how are we going to have more equity, uh, more like a social net for, for those who are needy. So it's something about the kind of society that, that you live in, that, that you need those. And we see it throughout Ruth. Um, Ruth and Naomi would have starved if, if they couldn't go to a field and picked up some barley in order to eat. We, we desperately need this if we're thinking about the journey towards redemption. But that's only part of the story. Megillat Ruth is also all about chesed, right? So Megillat, that's kula chesed. It's all about loving kindness. And there's all of this amazing, amazing moments in the Megillah of ordinary people doing extraordinary things that are not about social systems, but are about the ability to see humans and to be compassionate and to take care of them. Um, and, you so, know, so, let me give you yeah, an example. Please, well, and then, what would you, what would you yeah. pick as the example for Chesed? I think the classic, yeah, the classic example is, is uh, Ruth going with Naomi. Uh, and, and I see it as like a, an act of tremendous love because Naomi is so vulnerable and Ruth basically says, I'm going to go with you and take care of you. And that is not something that anyone could have expected. Right, that's not the law. That's, you know. Exactly. But that's also a very high standard. So I want to share a second example that I think <laughs> is more manageable for us. And that is one of uh, Boaz. I think Boaz is a counterpart of Ruth as someone who lives chesed. And there's this moment in the Megillah in which um, Boaz and Ruth meet in the threshing floor in the Goren and they talk about uh, him possibly helping her and Naomi. Uh, and it's unclear what's going to happen, but Ruth is going to go back home to Naomi while Boaz is going to figure out what's going to happen. And before she goes off, Boaz turns to her and says, don't go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Here are six measures of barley. So, so here we have a man who on the one hand is thinking in terms of, of systems, of what does it mean to help redeem a widow, uh, help redeem their land, uh, social systems. But he also has the chesed, like what kind of compassion, what kind of compassionate gaze reminds you of the time that there's a vulnerable widow who might be hungry, might not have breakfast, and that something as small as sending six measures of barley can be not just life-sustaining to feel her hunger, but can make her be seen, be, be, be recognized and taken care of. So, so, so beautiful, Michal. And I, I wonder if... You know, these aren't two things which just happen to be side by side, which you're picking up on uh, the, the law, the tzedek and the chesed, the kindness. But actually, in your example that you just gave of Boaz, they're actually interacting in a really interesting way. Is, is, is that correct? That on the one hand, if I understood you correctly, Boaz is fulfilling the um, agricultural charitable laws in terms of what he's giving Ruth. But he is also, that's the tzedek element, but is also sort of combining it, fusing it with a, with a concern, a chesed beyond that. Yes, uh, yes. And what I learned from Megillah is not only that this could be combined, but that they must be combined. That the road from disaster to the beginning of a redemption is one that takes seriously our obligation to focus on both. 
to ask ourselves what are the social systems that we need to establish and invest on, but that that should never stop us from the individual chesed and vice versa. That if we're people who do a lot of individual chesed, that we cannot wash our hands off from the social systems and laws and institutions to help the most vulnerable. So it's the intersection, the combination of both that I think make Megillat Ruud so powerful and that I also think are so timely and urgent for us today to, to ask ourselves, are we, are we focused on both? As we, you know, as we leave out this this incredibly challenging moment. That's lovely. That's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. So, what are so if I were to turn to you and ask you, uh, from from learning Megillat Root, um, what stands out to you as something uh, powerful and meaningful right now? So, the following might sound really strange, and you're probably gonna laugh, but my favorite thing to think about when it comes to Megillat Root is actually filtered to, because Megillah Rutt is a very small book, it's only four chapters, it's actually filtered through um, two of the largest books I have ever read, um, two classics of Russian literature. I'm a big fan of, of the great Russian writers. Both of these books are well over a thousand pages. Um, okay. <laughs> don't worry, you don't need to read them in order to understand the following, though I highly, I highly <laughs> recommend it. The first one is, is, is War and Peace by, by Tolstoy. And Tolstoy has this essential argument that War and Peace is, is set during the Napoleonic uh, Wars with Russia, and it's about the Tsar and about Napoleon. But really, it's a mockery of the, the big man idea of history. The idea that history is decided and conducted by a few very powerful leaders, almost always men, you know, Napoleon in France, uh, the Tsar in Russia, and it's they who will decide the course of history. War and Peace is this great and beautiful novel, but its essential philosophical argument is that actually Alexander, the Tsar, and Napoleon are themselves, you know, pawns and Really, how history is carried forward is through through the small people, through the the everyday people. And how does this connect to Ruth? Well, one of the um, really sort of basic questions to ask, I guess, about any book of Tanakh is when does it take place? What's its historical setting? And um, we're given a clue at the beginning of. Uh, the book of Ruth. The opening verse is, It was in the days when the judges judged, which seems to be a, a pretty clear reference to the book that carries that name, Shoftim, the book of, of judges. Now, Shoftim, I always like to say about it, if there's a story in the Bible uh, which you're not sure where it takes place, it's probably in Shoftim. You've heard the story of Shimshon and his long hair and his great strength. It's in Shoftim. You've heard of uh, Barak and Yael and Sisera. It's in Shoftim. So why is is Rut not in Shoftim? It's so let me just make sure, Rabbi that I understand your question. You're saying that the context of the book of Rut is in the time of the judges, but for some reason, unlike all the other narratives, this is a separate scroll. It's not in the book of Shoftim. That's correct. There is even a theory that Josephus, the great uh, Jewish historian, at the time of uh, the destruction of the temple, that uh, he counted um, Ruth as a part of the book of Shoftim. There's, a, there's a, a, a strong argument to be made that he does. Um, but the answer as to why it's not included is actually 
um, quite clear. Because Root stands in, in direct opposition to everything that Shoftim is. Shoftim, on the one, is a book about national leadership. Its title is The Judges. It focuses on the leader of the age, who is frequently a military leader. And Root is a quiet story about simple individuals, about two widows, essentially, uh, who are impoverished and, and, and their, their journey from, as you described it, from famine to a, a much happier, a much happier closure. But Rut is also fundamentally opposed to Shoftim in, um, in its content. Shoftim is a really strong contender for the most depressing book of the Bible. From its beginning to its end, it's just this description of the dissolution of Israelite society on a political level, on a spiritual religious level, on a moral level. We won't go into it now, but the last chapters of the book of Shoftim are probably the most depressing chapters of the Bible. This terrible story called Pilegesh Begivah of a rape and a murder, which then ends in the largest civil war. And the final line of the book of Shoftim, which is repeated again and again, is Bayamim Hahem lo haya melech In those days, there was no king in Israel. Each person would do as was right in their own eyes. And the root is the counter to that. And here's just a beautiful little thing. The book that follows after Shoftim is the book of Shmuel. And Shmuel is a book of prophecy and of, of optimism and of the beginning of, of kingship. And there's this lovely line at the end of Rut, where Rut has now had a child and the, the women of the town come to Nomi and say, we're so happy for you. Your daughter-in-law is so wonderful. You've had a grandchild. And she is better for you than, than for seven sons. And that line, that strange line, X, someone is better for you than X number of, of sons, only appears in one other place in the Bible, and that's in the first chapter of the book of Shmuel. The, the mother of, of Hannah is told by her husband that he is better for her than ten sons. And so it's, it's so simple. How do you move from the book of Shoftim, its darkness and its, its tragedy, to the book of Shmuel? And the answer is the book of Rut. It's, it, it's the bridge. And so put in another way, how do you move from this period of, of political dissolution and a failure of leadership to another brighter day, it's actually not on the big high level of politics and leadership. It's what takes place within individual people. I've only told you about my first Russian book, but what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I think that's beautiful. And I think what you're introducing is actually that the, the book of Ruth has multiple journeys and narratives within them, right? So we can identify from, from famine to prosperity. From Tkufata Shoftim, the time of like anarchy and human evil doing and, and like, you know, broken leadership and idolatry and cycles of, of just wrongdoing to the book of Samuel, of Shmuel, where we actually learn about the beginning of the Melucha, of, of kingship. And, and an actual physical journey the... from Israel to Moab and then back to right. Israel again. Right. So, so there's something really, really powerful about Ruth that it's a bridge. It's a bridge from being in the bottom, like in a moment of despair and then moving up and and what you're suggesting really powerfully that we learn here is that it is ordinary women and men uh, in difficult situations who maybe undertake extraordinary actions, who can 
make a difference in history. And they, exactly, they aren't just praiseworthy in and of themselves, they did a good deed, but they are actually where the historical process takes place. Can I share with you briefly my second Russian novel? More Russian novels, sure. More Russian novels. So everyone's heard of War and Peace. Maybe that's a generalization. Many people have heard of War and Peace. Far fewer have heard of Life and Fate. Life and Fate, and I'm going to make a huge claim, is the greatest book of the 20th century. Can I make a competing claim? You can. <laughs> I, I, I bought it and couldn't, I, I started, couldn't, couldn't, really, couldn't really get through it, which is why I'm excited to hear what you're going to uh, say about it. <laughs> well, at least I'll share with you one of the best quotes from it. It, it, it. To be fair, it is huge. My version of it has a seven-page character index uh, at the back. Um, it, it, it's, it's seen as the Battle of Stalingrad in, in World War II. And the explosive claim that the author, Vasily Grossman, makes is that, and he's as a Soviet journalist, is that at Stalingrad, Hitler hands the sword of tyranny to Stalin. And it, it self-consciously sets it up, itself up as war and peace a century later. It's no longer um, Napoleon and the Tsar, it's Hitler and Stalin. But again, Grossman makes the same argument as Tolstoy. It's not the the history doesn't move forward on the plane of Hitler and Stalin. It moves forward between the characters. And so much of the story is this focus on the kindness. I've just got to read this quote. And I read this quote for the first time. And this this was this was root. I have seen that it is not man who is impotent in the struggle against evil, but the power of evil that is impotent in the struggle against man. The powerlessness of kindness, of senseless kindness, is the secret of its immortality. It can never be conquered. The more stupid, the more senseless, the more helpless it may seem, the vaster it is. Evil is impotent before it. Human history is not the battle of good struggling to overcome evil. It is a battle fought by a great evil struggling to crush a small kernel of human kindness. But if what is human in human beings has not been destroyed even now, then evil will never conquer. Wow. That is gorgeous and profound. And, and maybe I should read the book. Uh, that is really, <laughs> well, if you don't, there's the quote. I think, you know, that is really, um, I think, you know, I, I'm finding it not only gorgeous about Ruth, but I find it really comforting uh, right now because we're not only in the middle of a pandemic, but each of us in our own context, I think, can feel a certain helplessness around whatever systems we think that um, are not acting in the right uh, way right now to, to make this time uh, better for so many. So there's something, there's something very encouraging, I think, and comforting to remember that, um, that, that power lies in, in, uh, in senseless kindness. Uh, That's right. That's Root is the story that yeah. we all need right now, the bridge. Yeah. So, said, yeah. Michal, let, let's, let's think about that which gives us so much joy, and which is the core of Shavuot. And that is, is Torah. It is the, the festival of the receiving of the Torah. Tell me about Torah. How do you imagine and conceptualize what Torah is? Uh, well, so that's, of course, a really big question and hard to, hard to answer on one foot. Uh, Torah, you know, I think at one level, is, um, it's everything, right? Especially if, um, if we spend a lot of time uh, studying it and, and loving it. Um, 
Let me offer one idea that has guided me, if it's okay. Not a comprehensive sure. one, but one that... Um, <laughs> okay, then. You don't need to explain what all of the Torah is to me in the next minutes. In one foot, minutes. right? Uh, like, oh, had, like, like the person who went to Shammai uh, and, and asked him, teach me everything in one foot. Um, so I'll share one idea that moved me, moved me deeply. Um, and that is the following. I was actually sitting... Uh, you know, I'm a sociologist, and I was taking a course... You mentioned it last time. <laughs> Yes, I'm just reminding you, just in case you forgot. And I was taking a course uh, that was teaching me how to conduct interviews. I know it sounds funny, but there's actual training that teaches you how to ask questions, how to follow up, what are the ethics, all those kind of things. And and I learned like uh, the work of Carol Gilligan, who's who's awesome, a psychologist, and and, and you know talks about philosophy and gender. And she also has a very we special mention NYU, NYU, NYU all the way. Um, and she also has a very specific methodology that she developed uh, called the listening guide in which she would take um, interviews and take every single word and sound as incredibly significant. So if an interviewee would say um, or would say I, I, or would just repeat something twice, that's not just by chance. It's actually, you have to pause and say, what is the meaning that comes here? Oh, you're now making and, me feel very self-conscious about my little hmm and ah that I, was, I make, as you were saying, interesting things. Okay. I, I do them all the time. But, um, but, but I, I recall sitting in that class and doing that exercise, and it was really radical because I felt like I was learning Torah. Because usually when we learn Torah and we do it seriously, right, Every little um, and by am um, I mean every little, every letter, every word, every white space in between letters and in between words is significant. We, we, when we approach the Torah, we, we treat it as the most sacred and holy of, of, of books, of words that we have to pour over. We have to read them every single year and love them, struggle with them. Uh, and there was just, you know, there was something magical um, about this. Let, let me tell you what, was so what, what, what came to mind at that point, and it really transformed the way that I approached learning Torah. Um, I, I started thinking about a quote that, that Heschel uh, has said. He made a point to said, we don't need more textbooks, we need more text people. We don't need like more Torah textbooks, we need more Torah text people. And I started thinking, what would it mean to commit ourselves to the flourishing and thriving of textbooks and text people? Uh, and what the, for me, what this means is that the learning of Torah and the thriving of Torah is this eternal conversation between people and words in which we approach each of them with the same care and love and sanctity that we have usually when we study classical Torah words and you know, using the sort of methodology of the of the listening guide. Um, does, does this make sense or is this too abstract? I, you're going to have to explain to me a little, a little bit what I, I, I treat a person as a text. Yeah, I feel like there's different uh, parts of my life. Some of them people um, approach other people as though their words are the most holy and perhaps books are more arcane and they don't matter as much. And then some Sometimes people approach the words written in a text as the most sacred, and then what people have to say or the experiences they bring not as significant. And 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 what Heschel asks uh, brings me to ask is, can we combine both? What would it mean to create a bet midrash to create like this covenantal conversation, in which in which the the words in the text are sacred, and the words that we ourselves bring are are, are profound as well. So if I'm learning a text with you. I have to actually challenge myself to take every little um and word and idea that you bring and take it really seriously and allow it to inform my learning of the text. 
That's beautiful. That is that is wonderful. Wow. I, I, I'm gonna, how do we treat people or look at the way in which we interact with people as if Ki'ilu, we are learning we are learning Torah. That is that is wonderful. Yes, and learning them at the same time. Uh, but but let me ask you, what is your your idea, your your uh, one inspiring idea right now as we go into Shavuot about what Torah learning is? So I, I think if it's all right, I'll, I'll take a text. It's a it's a midrash, a a rabbinic teaching about uh, about what Torah study is, and it, it comes off of a verse, as, as many midrashim do. It takes a verse as its uh, as its starting point, and the verse is in fact one about the giving of the Torah. The verse is is, is as follows: ad lev hashamayim. The, the 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 mountain was burning with fire up until the heart of of the heavens, and then it tells the following story about a great rabbi at the time of the Mishnah, a man called Ben Azai, and Ben Azai Hayayoshev Bedoresh. He was sitting and expounding, making midrash. And the fire was burning around him. As he would teach, there would be fire burning. And people saw this and they got, they got scared. They thought, what's happening? And they went to the, one of the other great rabbis of the age, Rabbi Akiva, and they said, he's, he's giving these teachings and the fire is burning around him. And Rabbi Akiva gets concerned and he goes to Ben Azai. And he says, I hear you're, you're darshaning, you're teaching, and the fire is burning around you. And Ben Azai says, yes, indeed, this is happening. And Rabbi Akiva says to him, Shema b'chadri melkava ha'ita asuka, you dealing with the sort of the, the, secret, uh, the secrets of the universe, you know, they're, they're maybe the hidden and perhaps forbidden teachings, and this is causing this fire. And Ben Azai says, "No, not at all. I'm, I'm not. I'm not dealing with anything of, of the greatest uh, profundity and hiddenness. Ella, rather, Haiti Yoshev bechorez. I'm, I'm sitting and chorez is, I think, like stringing beads almost. Like I, I'm sort of, I'm playing. I'm making a necklace. What does that mean? Bedivrei Torah. I'm taking verses from the Torah. Umi Torah leneviim, and I'm taking." Verses from the Torah, and I'm attaching them to verses from the prophets. And from the prophets to the books of the writings. I'm just taking one verse from a different part of the Bible and attaching it to another verse. And the, the words are, are rejoicing. Just as they were when they were given at Sinai. And they are as sweet as they were when they were originally given. And then the Midrash concludes, and the mountain was burning in fire. I just love that Midrash. It's so simple, it's so beautiful. It, it's a Midrash about what learning Torah is. Well, well, Rabbi Joe, tell me a little bit more. The Midrash is beautiful. It's also provocative. There's something about this fire, and fire can be illuminating, also dangerous. Um, what, what do you, it dangerous. Right. And what do you take from here about your own personal, you know, approach to Torah learning? I'll take two things. The first, firstly, 
the word playful. That Torah, I think, I think I thought this growing up, but I think many people do. It's heavy. It's fearful. It's commanding. Stuff you have to do. It's foreign. Ben Azai is having fun. He's stringing verses together. It's, it's not even a, a purely sort of logical engagement. It's just a, it's a, it's a playful a act of love. And of course, such a key word here is the sweetness of it. And Torah learning and Torah in our lives, is, Torah is a way of seeing the world as sort of like a lens which we put over, which enhances our vision of reality. It can be something playful. We are privileged to learn Torah and the words that we learn are things that we can attach to different moments in our life. That's one thing I get out of it. And the second thing I get out of it, and I think this is a really great message for Shavuot, is that although with every passing year and generation, we are more and more distant from Har Sinai, the Midrash says that actually Ben Azai returns to Har Sinai, that Torah as studied and as lived and as played with is actually something that is able to be returned to. What exactly does that mean? It's hard to say, but it's, I find it and I, I identify with it as just one of the most profound and beautiful ideas. Wow, that, um, that's really special, like thinking about the, the playfulness, our ability to interact with it, um, and also thinking about the, the making sure that we feel like we are at, at Sinai, at Matan Torah, and are able to really embody it, um, embody it to, today. So, so I want to wish... I think we have a lot of blessings to take from all of our learning, right? If we could take these blessings from Root that we've spoken about of, of, of journey and of bridge from darkness to light and of this bridge back of Ben Azai from this moment to Sinai, I mean, these would be blessings to give to, give to the world right now, I think. A hundred percent. And I think also, and, and we should end with this blessing to ourselves also, we're learning Torah right now. We've embarked on this journey. Um, and I guess may we have Siata Dishmai, may we have uh, Hashem's help and guidance to continue uh, approaching Torah learning in a way that is um, that is playful, in a way that helps us feel connected to, um, to Sinai, in a way that helps us approach the text as sacred and also to learn from each other's uh, words. Thank you so much, Michal. Michal, I'm going to wish you and all of our listeners a Chag Sameach, a festive Shavuot. We are going to be back next week as we're going to continue our journey into Sefer Bamidbao. This has been the Downtown Jarash. We hope that you enjoyed listening. Please do send us in your comments and your thoughts. We would love to hear from you and we hope you join us next time.